Welcome to the second season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Chris Marquis lived in Fairhaven, a small town in Vermont with a population of only 3,000. At a young age, Chris embraced technology. In his teen citizen band radios, or CBs as they're called, were popular with truck drivers to get updates on the weather, road conditions, and speed traps. Before Twitter handles, there were CB handles. Chris's handle was Psycho. Chris had four older siblings, but his mother had been unable to care for them, and they went to foster care. Chris was her last child, and she did her best to spoil him. His father died before he was born, and mother and son were best friends. They rented a small one-story mint greenhouse on a tree-lined street with large Victorian homes. A safe neighborhood next door to the police station and the fire department. Chris was slowly losing his eyesight from a genetic disorder. Sheila wanted to give her son everything she could before he lost his sight. They joined a program that raised guide dogs for the blind and attended training classes together. The disease narrowed his side vision. He managed during the day, but was blinded by darkness. And although he had a white cane, rather than use it, he chose to stay home. Sheila received disability payments for Chris. She supplemented her income by doing odd jobs and cleaning houses. Chris loved music, and when he was 14, he interned at the local radio station. Then he became a disc jockey for school dances, and one day planned to be a radio disc jockey. Then in the mid-90s, the internet became available to everyone. Chris jumped at the opportunity. He began advertising a CB business, calling it the CB Shack, and ran it out of his bedroom. He advertised on the internet, posting in chat rooms to buy, sell, or trade equipment. Chris got a tattoo on his right bicep of Taz, the Looney Tunes Tasmanian Devil cartoon. On the CB, he often chatted with the truckers. Sometimes he used his handle Taz, other times he used Psycho. And that described Chris to a T. He could come off as two different people. Some would say he was friendly, but others would say he could be mean and use the radio as a platform to verbally abuse others. A fellow shop owner described Chris as the king of Fairhaven. He could stomp on anybody with his radio. He was the loudest. In the late 90s, Chris amassed electronic gear that would have made anyone jealous. In addition to his expensive CB gear, 
His bedroom contained a TV, VCR, brand new computer, a professional DJ setup, a Sega, and a Super Nintendo. An in-depth article by Scott Kirshner at Wired described how Chris met his girlfriend Cindy in 1995. On the CB, Chris asked for a radio check, and a girl with the handle of schoolgirl answered him. For a year, they talked every day. Then Chris asked to meet her and showed up on her doorstep. With Chris's poor eyesight, he couldn't drive, so his mother took him places in her blue minivan. With Sheila behind the wheel, Chris would get on the CB and talk to Cindy until they ran out of airwaves. One day, she drove him to a CB shop in nearby Middlebury, ran by Mark Hutzinger, who went by the handle Gonzo. Chris would walk into Gonzo's shop and point at what he wanted. And no matter what the cost, even if it was thousands, his mother bought it for him. Gonzo quietly wondered how they could afford it. But Chris and his mother had a secret no one knew about. The pair had become experts at shoplifting. Rather than work for what they wanted, they simply stole it. Over time, they began to trust Gonzo and confided in him about their shoplifting sprees and bragged that they did all their Christmas shopping for free. In the fall of 1997, Chris dropped out of high school and spent hours within the wood-paneled walls of his room, on the internet, and the CB radio. On a CB Shack website, Chris portrayed himself as a 27-year-old father. Perhaps he thought it gave him credence as a business owner, and that if people knew he was just a teenager, they might not trust him. In January 1998, Chris and his mother visited a department store 20 miles away in Rutland. There, Sheila stuffed her pockets with 33 paintbrushes and a drill bit set. Chris went to the electronics department and stole CDs. The two were caught leaving the store and arrested. Sheila was fined just over $100, and Chris was sentenced to a court diversion program. Business at the CB Shack was going well, but then Chris's dishonest ways snuck in. Perhaps sitting in his bedroom in a small town in the middle of nowhere gave him a false sense of security, that no one could touch him. He started taking people's money and not shipping their orders, or he shipped equipment that was worth much less than what they paid for. 700 miles away in Pierston, Indiana, 35-year-old Christine, who went by the handle of Tomcat, heard about the CB Shack. He was a truck driver and stood over six feet tall. Tomcat contacted Chris, and the two worked out a $400 deal to trade equipment. Tomcat shipped his equipment to the CB Shack, but Chris didn't ship the equipment he'd agreed to trade. Instead, 
he substituted a cheap radio that didn't even work. His mother knew Chris wasn't sending the right radio, but he brushed it off, saying he needed to buy some time. When Tomcat received the broken radio, he was furious. He told a friend about getting ripped off, and he emailed and phoned Chris numerous times and threatened him. Even his wife Diane called Chris several times and warned him that her husband would be going to Vermont to collect what he was owed. Chris told his mother about the calls, and they came up with a plan. The next time Tom Cat or his wife called, she'd tell him that he'd left town and was in jail in another state. Not long after, Gonzo visited Chris at home, and Chris confided in him what he'd done and that he was worried Tomcat was going to show up at his door. Gonzo suggested he return Tomcat's radio, but Chris had no plans to do that. On March 11, 1998, Tomcat posted a warning on the internet. The Burlington Free Press reported that he warned other CB users do not buy anything from the CB shack in Vermont. Me and several others have been ripped off by this place. The guy's name is Chris, and he will take the money and not send any radios. If someone will help me get a plane ticket to Vermont, I will go pay him a visit and show him what a six-foot-five-inch redneck does to people who steal his hard-earned money. Then Tomcat set out to get revenge and teach Chris a lesson. On the internet, he found instructions on how to make a pipe bomb. Over the next week, he assembled all the necessary items, a clothespin, thumbtacks, hexagon nuts, black powder, and of course a steel pipe. He made a prototype and detonated it in his backyard, blasting a hole in the ground. But it wasn't strong enough, so he made the second one more powerful. He told his friend that he was going to send Chris a package in the mail that he'd be surprised to get. Meanwhile, Chris met another CB enthusiast online, Mark Zisco in Michigan, and they worked at a trade. Mark shipped his equipment to Chris, but Chris didn't ship anything to Mark. Instead, he gave Mark a phony tracking number. Mark immediately called UPS and put a stop to his delivery and reported the fake tracking number to their fraud department. The company asked Mark if he knew anyone else that Chris had done this to, and he said he'd see what he could find out. On March 14th, Mark posted in several chat rooms, asking for anyone that had been ripped off by Chris to contact him by email. Within days, he heard from a handful of people, including Tomcat. Two days later, Tomcat posted another message online that said, He ripped me off too. I am posting ads about that crook all over the internet. The address I have 
is Washington Street, Fairhaven, Vermont. Don't mail this liar any money, or you will be poorer but wiser. The next day, someone else posted, Hi Chris, remember me? Viacom? Well, I am coming back to get you. And Tomcat posted again, I will go there and collect everyone's money back and give him some severe dental problems to deal with. Are you listening, Chris? When you see a six-foot-five-inch dark-haired man at your door, you better duck. Tomcat printed an address label for the CB Shack on his computer, then made up a fake name and address for the return label. Samantha Brown in Ohio. He packed the bomb into a styrofoam box, then put it in a two-foot-long cardboard box. On Wednesday, March 18th, he drove his work truck to Mansfield, 150 miles from his home. There, he dropped off his package at UPS. It was put on a plane to Manchester, New Hampshire, then on a truck to Vermont. The next morning was cold, dark, and gray, when Armand, the UPS driver, picked up the package and loaded it into his truck. That afternoon, he knocked on the door at the house on Washington Street. Sheila opened it and recognized him. She took the package and closed the door and carried it down the hall to Chris's bedroom. She didn't recognize the name on the return address label. So curious, she sat down on his bed and waited. He was talking with Cindy when his mom walked in. Chris noticed the name on the box, too, and didn't recognize it. He mentioned it to Cindy, and she joked that it was probably a bomb. He turned the talk button off on a CD mic and grabbed his pocket knife and slit the cardboard box open. Inside, he saw the styrofoam box and began to cut. The blast made a hole in the roof and a matching depression in the floor. It blew apart Sheila's right leg, and the tips of her fingers on her right hand were missing. The shrapnel tore into Chris's face, neck, and abdomen. Much of his left thigh was gone. He ran towards the door, but didn't make it. Sheila tried to crawl towards him, but her right knee gave out, and she kept falling. She asked Chris questions, but all he could do was moan. Cindy stayed on the radio, hearing only silence, waiting for Chris to come back. Neighbors heard the explosion and ran outside to investigate and call police, but they didn't need to. Next door, 60 feet away, the police chief was on the phone when he heard the loud boom and the window behind him rattled. He slammed the phone down and rushed outside. Within minutes, he and his sergeant saw smoke rising up from Sheila and Chris's house. They arrived to find Chris's bedroom full of smoke and Sheila and Chris laying on the blood-soaked carpet. 
Sheila was able to tell them that Chris had been standing over the box when it exploded, and that there was a guy in Indiana who was mad at him and was threatening to come to Vermont. Paramedics arrived. Chris was unconscious and barely alive. They loaded him into the ambulance and headed for the hospital. On the way, 17-year-old Chris passed away. Sheila was rushed to the hospital and had surgery to remove the shrapnel on her leg where a three-inch piece of pipe was embedded. Authorities quickly learned of Chris's CB shack and the threatening emails, phone calls, and internet posts. The Rutland Daily Herald reported that police talked to Chris's girlfriend, Cindy, and learned about Tomcat's threats. Near Chris's computer, investigators located a sheet of white paper with Tomcat's name and address. That night, investigators interviewed a friend of Tomcat's, and he told them about his problems with the CB shack, and that he was aware Tom had searched the internet looking for instructions to make a pipe bomb. Local, state, and federal authorities descended on the small ranch house on Washington Street. A specialized bomb squad was brought to the scene. They combed the grass looking for clues and ended up finding debris from the bomb three houses away. By 6 p.m. the next day, police arrested Christine, known as Tomcat. He was charged with placing an explosive on an airplane and transportation of an explosive device used to kill or injure people across state lines, which was a federal crime. Investigators recovered the UPS handwritten shipping label and matched it to Christine's handwriting. At his home, they found a styrofoam container with missing pieces that they believed he cut up and used to ship the bomb. They also found hexagon nuts that matched the ones used, and fishing line similar to the one used to trigger the bomb. In his backyard, they found an end cap from the test bomb he'd made and matched it to the bomb that killed Chris. And inside Chris Marquis's wallet, they found the UPS receipt with a tracking number and Christine's address. Wired reported that a few weeks after Chris's arrest, a local shop owner in Pearson ran into Chris's wife, Diane. She needed to raise money and was selling Chris's radio equipment and asked him to appraise it. Now here comes the twist, and I do love a twist. When the shop owner arrived at Chris and Diane's house, his jaw dropped. A few months earlier, his shop had been broken into, and he was staring at his own stolen equipment, worth $5,000. Suddenly, it was all coming together. Christine didn't report Chris in the CB shack to police, because it's likely he was using it to trade stolen merchandise. Chris sat in a cell at St. Albans Prison and waited for his trial to begin. He pled not guilty and was facing the death penalty 
A year and a half later, in September 1999, Chris changed his plea to guilty in exchange for the death penalty being withdrawn. The following spring of 2000 at a sentence hearing, Christine stood in shackles. His wife sat nearby. The Burlington Free Press reported that Sheila wore a jacket that belonged to her son. Outside the courtroom, she pulled nickels and quarters out of the pockets and said, This is Chris's money. Then she slipped her hand into the other pocket and pulled out his handkerchief. Sheila didn't believe in the death penalty. She believed punishment would be better served by Chris spending his life in prison. She got her wish when Christine was sentenced to life in prison with no parole. He was also ordered to pay Sheila $50,000 in compensation for her injuries. Seven years after she lost her son, Sheila took an ad out in the local newspaper. Merry Christmas, my sweet son. You are always in my heart. Love, Mom. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Gail Katz Spirenbaum. She was a beautiful, intelligent woman with a bright future. She married Bob, a doctor and pilot, who hid his evil rage until one day when he snapped and buried his wife at sea. Thirty-five years later, he finally confessed. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Purple Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>